If you have your Bibles, um, I, inter- I encourage you to turn with me to Acts 13. We're going to read a big passage today, and so uh, I want you to stay with me. We have been looking at this church in Antioch. We looked at it during our missions conference. We looked at it last week. So we're kind of trying to learn from this church and understand from how they did ministry what we believe that God, I believe, is calling us to do. If you were here last week, we talked about the particular call that we believe that Christ's covenant has to the city, to the city of Atlanta, to be in the heart of the city, to be an influence for uh, this place. Uh, we've, we've often said that the places of greatest cultural influence are oftentimes the places of least gospel influence. And, and we have been a church that's tried to push back against that. We want to have great gospel influence in a place of great cultural influence. So we looked at that last week as we looked at Acts chapter 11. And what God has done is really there's a church that's been established in Antioch. It's really the first time the gospel goes to the city. The church has thrived in this city so much to where they start sending out church planters and missionaries. They, they start to establish other churches in different cities that are nearby them. And I fully believe the Lord can use Christ's covenant to do the same thing. And so what happens today is Paul is in actually another city called Antioch. So it's confusing. It's not the same Antioch as where he came from. It's, it's another place called Antioch, right? So think of Dallas, Georgia, and Dallas, Texas, right? But these are two big cities. These are two full-sized cities. Um, and Paul is here, and this is his sermon. I'm going to read from Acts 13, beginning in 16. And again, it's a long passage, so please uh, bear with me because it's really powerful and it's really important. Acts 13, beginning in 16, hear the word of the Lord. Many of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land and his inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will." Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, the sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him, by condemning Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says in another song, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying in the word of the Lord so that many as, uh, as were appointed to eternal life and believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. But the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is a really important passage, and there's so many things that we could look at today, but two things that I think are particularly instructive for us. And the first is this, gospel faithfulness in any age. And then the second is a gospel response in any age. So let's look at the first, gospel faithfulness in any age. What Paul does here is he gives a masterful sermon. You know, I'm almost tempted to just sit down and just say, hey, <laughs> we've heard a great sermon today. Paul has delivered us a great sermon. I cannot preach as good as the Apostle Paul can. But what Paul does here is he shows that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the hope of Abraham. He was the offspring of David. He has come to establish a kingdom that will not 
end that will not be corrupted. He is the fulfillment of the Psalms. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. And the very people that should have seen him, that should have recognized him, that should have seen all of this are the very people that killed him, that put him to death. But Jesus overcame death. And now he is uncorruptible. Now he is establishing a kingdom that will not end. And because Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, what we learn here is that he was also the Messiah of the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike. Every person can have hope in Jesus. And Paul kind of concludes this section. This is a passage. Look at verse 38. This really jumped out at me. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins, is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is free. They're freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. And again, what's so interesting is this has a wide hearing. Everyone rejoices this. The Gentiles rejoice this. Isn't that interesting? That, that Paul is saying here, what you've been trying to be freed from by the law of Moses, these people that don't ascribe to the law of Moses, that haven't studied the law of Moses, they don't know much about the law of Moses, they're listening. They're believing. They're trusting in Jesus. They want to be free also. Could it be that by this man, we could be free? And this is really the gospel message, not only in this age, the age of Paul and Barnabas, but in every age, that the power of Christ has so much power that in him you could be free. We, we know we need to be free. There are certain things that everyone is looking for freedom from. I mean, the most obvious one, I just listed a few here, the most obvious one is pain, evil, and suffering, right? Do you want to be freed from pain? Do you want to be freed from a world of evil? Do you want to be freed from a world of suffering? Yes, <laughs> obviously. Everyone in every age has sought freedom from these things. Everyone has recognized pain, evil, and suffering. And most everyone has a solution. If we could just get rid of this, if we could just do this, if everybody would just do a little more of this, there would be no pain, evil, and suffering. The second thing that we want to be freed from is our own sin. Now, you may say, well, hold on, Jason. I know a lot of modern people, and they don't believe in sin. They don't believe in the concept of sin. And I know people like that, too. I know people that say they don't believe in sin. Now, here's what's really going on. A lot of people don't believe in their own sin, but the same kind of people that tell me they don't believe in sin, you know what these people are masters of? Every one of them. Every person that's ever told me they don't believe in sin, they're probably the best person I know at pointing out the sin of others. They're the best people at saying, yeah, well, I don't believe in sin. I figured it out, but they're the problem. They do this. They do that. Of course, everyone believes in sin. You can definitely apply it to others. And when you really start to understand who you are, you want to be freed from your own sin. The third is death. I mean, obviously, <laughs> who can be freed from death? <clears throat> we want to be freed from death. We've all tried to live longer. We try to preserve our lives. 
We have all these different methods to do this. Even if we know that definitely we're, we're going to die someday, there's going to be a terminus point in our lives. We at least want to have some sort of ongoing legacy, some sort of ongoing impact to, to survive death, if you will, to be preserved. And the fourth thing that people want to be freed from is judgment or accountability for our sin. Now, again, people will say, well, I don't believe in that. And again, that's not true. <laughs> people can say that, but no one has a worldview that actually affirms that they don't believe that there's some sort of judgment someday. Nobody believes that it's the same for Hitler as for Mother Teresa. That may be what's consistent with your worldview, but intuitively, everyone knows better than that. So people want to be free. We want to be free from pain, evil, and suffering. We want to be free from our own sin. We want to be free from death. We want to be free from accountability. And so what everybody has done, because we desire freedom, is that we've looked to all these different things. Religious people do what? They look to the law of Moses, or they look to some law, right? Maybe the law of Moses can free me. Maybe if I just follow this revelation, maybe if I can just obey and do this thing, then I will be free. But the problem is we can't. We can't obey the law. We can't obey any law. And again, what I'm talking about here is the actual virtue that exists in you. People can appear superficially or externally righteous. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is to actually be virtuous, to actually have virtue in your heart, to actually have your heart aligned with God. You know, the Bible says none are righteous. Now you hear that and you think, man, that's kind of harsh. But again, if the goal of religion is not just to give you some sort of facade of righteousness, but it's to actually make you righteous. It's to actually align your heart with the heart of God. As the great commandment says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. If that's the goal of the law, well, who does that? Who's actually has a heart aligned with God all the time? You know, think of this weekend, even if you, even if your heart was only disaligned with God three times an hour, which feels pretty good. <laughs> I think I would take three times an hour of not being aligned with God, right? You know, I was thinking about this way. If my heart was not aligned with God three times an hour since the beginning of COVID, okay? Now, I'm going to be honest. COVID was tricky. <laughs> my heart was not aligned with God you know, less than three times an hour during COVID, but that's more than 30,000 times since the beginning of COVID that my heart has not been in line with God. Here's the point. The law hasn't worked. The law hasn't made us in line with God. The law of Moses cannot free us. And so if we were to really stand before God, wanting to be free from pain and suffering and evil, we have to admit that we're at least part of the problem of pain and suffering and evil in the world. And then we have to admit that we're sinners. And then we have to face our own death and we have to face accountability. If we were to really stand before God in his courtroom, if you will, what are we to say? What are we to do? And so what we have done, what, what really people have kind of done in a more modern world 
is we've said, well, we can be free from the judge if we just get out of the courtroom. <laughs> Let's just get rid of the judge. And so people have gone to religious law, but in more recent days, at least in the past few hundred years, they've gone to modernity, which is kind of the second place that people have run, or what I'll call naturalism. What the Enlightenment or what the modern world really tried to do was create a worldview, to create an understanding of the world without some sort of notion of God, without a holy book, without the holy wars that people were very tired of. Can we just observe the universe? Can we just use reason? Can we just be educated and overcome these things? We don't need God. Reason will free us. Rationalism will free us. Education will free us. The enlightenment will free us. And look, we, we have to admit there's, there's many good things that have come out of this, but the Enlightenment has given us some bad things too, like colonialism, for example, right? The enlightened people are going to go enlighten the world, and they're going to go straighten up all the people that disagree with us, or these totalitarian regimes of the 20th century where literally hundreds of millions of people were killed for not being in line with the enlightened regime, Enlightenment hasn't worked. All we need is rationality. Well, whose rationality, right? All we need is justice. Whose justice? So the law didn't free us. Enlightenment didn't free us. And so in the 20th century, the, the reaction to modernity, and I would say a needed reaction to modernity, but a wrong reaction was post-modernity. And, and post-modernity, the answer there is just, look, we can't, we can't trust ration and reason and justice. We can't trust, you know, the law. What we can trust is what's within. We can find ourselves. And so now we've found ourselves in a world without any absolutes or any truth. Truth is within. We can present ourselves however we want to be presented. Tell your story. And yet we live in a world where technology has kind of made this possible. You kind of can tell whatever story you want to tell. And more importantly, you can find people who celebrate the story that you're telling, right? If you believe that, for example, there's no global warming at all, or if you believe that the world will be ended as it is because of global warming in five years, you can find people that believe either of those things, all right? So what is there to believe? If you believe that we've never been to the moon or that the world is flat, there, there are people out there that will affirm these things. Why? Because truth is relative. It's within. And even basic things that people have recognized for a long time are now in question. Like, like for example, this is a big topic of debate going on right now, the idea of gender, right? That's kind of been one of the most obvious facts from the very beginning of the world. And now it's become fluid. Am I really a man in a woman's biology or am I a woman in a man's biology? And it, what's interesting about this is because of technology, even though these things obviously aren't natural or scientific, they're possible. And you can tell these stories. And you can present yourself in these ways. This is just to illustrate the point. I was doing a little research on this this week. And there's actually a movement of folks right now that are identifying as Jessica Rabbit. It's kind of a thing. Like there's this, like many people are trying to become Jessica Rabbit, the fictional character from the 1980s movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And what's so interesting is because of technology, people can kind of pull it off. 
You can present yourself in whatever way you want. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why would people do this? Here's why. You know why people would do this? Verse 39. The law of Moses didn't free us. Modernity didn't free us. And so now we're looking within to free us, and is it working for us? No. We're no more free. Which is why this message, he has come to free you. He has come to do what the law of Moses could not do, was so interesting to these people in Antioch of Pisidia. And why it should be so interesting to you. Let it be known to you that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is free from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. By him, by Jesus, you can be free. You, you can actually be free from all of these things that we desire freedom from. But how? How does it work? How did, how did modernity and post-modernity and the law of Moses, how did all of this fail and Jesus do it? Well, there's a few things in the text. First, we see that there was a promise to Messiah. What Paul is trying to do here is saying, look, this, this notion of this messianic freedom, this savior who would come to free you, it actually goes back a long time. And this is not a new message. In fact, what we know, he doesn't go all the way back to the beginning, but what, what we know from reading scripture is that the promise of redemption in the Messiah actually goes back to the very beginning of time. It is, what we read in scripture is that God created the world good and right. Now, I believe that intuitively we know that. We know at least that the world is supposed to be good, but we know that it's broken. We know that it's not good. This is, this is also, I think, an intuitive world, but we, we can imagine a, how it could be good, right? We, we, can, we don't believe that naturally the world is totally broken. We believe that it could be good. And so what we are seeing there is that this good creation has been perverted, has been broken. And of course, we read about this in Scripture that through human action, sin, a disordering has entered into God's created world. But from that very moment, from the, from the moment of sin, there was a promise that God gave that one day an offspring of the woman would come who would undo the curse, who would begin to restore the brokenness, who would crush the head of the serpent, and of course, this continues throughout the Old Testament. Later, God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you an offspring. And through your offspring, the whole world will be blessed. And even in the midst of that offspring going into Egypt and being enslaved, what do we see? In, the, in this dark moment for them, God made them great. Look at verse 17. The God of Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out. And of course, God established a kingdom and he established David as their king, a good king. As we see in verse 22, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. And what God said to David is you will have a son and he will have a never ending kingdom. Your offspring will reign in a kingdom forever. But then what did David do? David went and sinned in the worst way. He ended up having sex with one of his most trusted general's wives. 
He impregnated her, and then he plotted and did have this general killed. It was this horrible stain on David's reign and on his kingdom. But through this horrible thing and through her eventual offspring, what did God do? God provided this great offspring, the Lord, this forever king, even John the Baptist, who at the end of his ministry was arrested and beheaded, testified about Jesus saying, what do you suppose that I am? Verse 25, I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. I love this. All throughout this kind of messianic lineage, where do, what do we see? The promise of hope and freedom always kind of comes in the darkest hour. There has been a promised Messiah. Now what these people didn't see is that the promised Messiah was God himself. It was God that would actually visit the people. It was God that came to free us. When you're standing in the courtroom before the judge and all the evidence of your life is known, it's all presented to the judge, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? How are you going to be freed in that moment? And the answer is there's not much we could do unless somehow the judge would act. And this is the amazing message of the gospel. It's the very judge who should condemn us has acted on our behalf. The very judge who should condemn us has taken on our condemnation. This is the story of the gospel, and we see it in the text here. The text points out a few things about this Messiah. First, he was free from corruption. He was sinless. He was faultless. Jesus actually lived in alignment with God. He actually lived out our righteousness. He actually lived out our justice in perfect alignment with God. Jesus did obey the law of Moses perfectly, not in a superficial external way, but he actually was righteous. The law of Moses actually produced righteousness in him. Jesus actually was enlightened, right? He actually understood reason and justice, and he actually understood how the world was created. And you know what? Jesus could actually look within for truth. Why? Because his heart was actually pure. His heart was actually in line with God. Jesus was free from corruption. The second thing that this text says of Jesus, or the third thing in this order here, is that he was killed by his own people, the Jewish people. Now, what's so interesting about this is that it's true, right? Jesus was put to death by the people that should have most obviously seen him. They should have most obviously recognized this. Jesus was put to death by his own people. Now that's true, but it's also a metaphor. This is what happened to Jesus. He was put to death by his people, all of his people, all of the people that he came to save, including us. It was actually our need, our sin that called him. It was our sin that crushed him. It was our sin that put him to death. It was our sin that killed him. God has sent us a substitute. And the amazing thing about this way of salvation, this way of freedom, of forgiveness of sin, our hope is not in some obedience to the law. Christians are not the kind of people that are looking to our obedience. But as we said, we can't do it. We never do it. 
Even when we make up our own laws. You know, Benjamin Franklin, I was listening to a podcast about him this week. He famously came up with his own law, right? His own virtues. Franklin's 13 virtues. And for a time in his life, he very rigorously obeyed them. And you know what the virtues did for Benjamin Franklin? They made him wealthy. They made him famous. They gave him power. And when he got fame and we got wealth and we got power, you know what Benjamin Franklin did? You know how Benjamin Franklin ended his life? He totally abandoned his virtues. He didn't need his virtues anymore. And you know what you and I do with the law? We do the same thing. We have a very utilitarian view of the law. I'll do this if I get this in return. I'll obey this. I'll appear this way. I'll obey as long as it's working out for me. Do you, do you see the problem? It doesn't actually make you virtuous. It doesn't actually make you righteous. It doesn't actually purify your heart. As Christians, we, we don't have hope in our obedience to the law because our hearts are broken. As Christians, we don't have hope in how enlightened we are right? So to hear that, okay? Christianity is not some academic ascent that we have come to, and now we can kind of look at the rest of the world as if they're stupid and small-minded. This is not some other form of an enlightenment. As Christians, our, our hope is certainly not within. Our hope is certainly not looking at our own heart. We understand that our heart is corrupted. No, as Christians, we are the kind of people that realize we are broken and our only hope is someone else, something else, some savior that would come to rescue us. And that's exactly who we have in Jesus, that God has become like us and lived out righteousness and died in our place and suffered the right judgment that we deserve. By him, everyone who believes is free from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. And finally, Jesus was raised to establish his kingdom. Jesus is not still dead. There is a future hope. You could think of it this way. In Jesus, this corrupted world, this corrupted order died. Jesus took on our corruption, he took on our sin, and he died. And that was, if you will, the beginning of the end of this corrupted age. And the resurrection was the beginning of this new age, of this new order, of an uncorruptible kingdom. Now, Christians, we can now begin to taste that. This is something we talk about, the already and not yet of the kingdom. There is an already to the kingdom of God. You can taste forgiveness of sin. You can taste that you can be free in Christ. You can taste the hope and the joy that we have in Jesus, but not yet fully. We have a hope that one day when we die, that we will be raised with God in a never-ending kingdom where all of these things that we want to be free from, we will finally be free from. There will be no pain or suffering or death or evil. There'll be no sin. As Augustine says, we won't even be able to sin. There'll be no, uh, there'll be no death anymore. And there'll, accountability, we won't fear accountability. God will know everything about us and we will be welcome in his presence because we have been made righteous by the Lord. We don't have to hide. Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is free from everything that you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. 
And so we've been talking about gospel faithfulness in this age. Gospel faithfulness in this age. Will we be faithful to this gospel, to this hope that we have to Christ in this age? But finally, and I'm going to be quick here, and it's a response to the gospel in any age. Look at verse 48. It says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And many, as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. I love this. Paul and Barnabas, they're faithful to preach the gospel in this city. And some believe, some trust in Christ by faith. More churches are planted. The gospel advances. And here's the deal. Look, you are some of these kinds of people. You have heard this. You've heard this message. The gospel has come alive in your heart. It's brought joy in your heart. You've been a part of planting this church. And our hope is in this whole building that as we are faithful to the gospel in the city, in this age, this would be part of the response that people would hear, that they would believe that more churches would be planted, that this kingdom would advance, that we would see gospel fruit. But as we see in this text, this is not how everyone responds. Look at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And they drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Isn't this such an interesting passage? The gospel goes out. Some receive. They're filled with joy. They're overwhelmed. Churches are planted. Disciples are raised up from all tribes, from all different types of people. The Gentiles are coming into the kingdom of God. But some are furious. Some reject this. They drive Paul and Barnabas out of the city. Some receive it with joy. Some hate the message. And look, I, I don't want to be overdramatic here. I hate when preachers are overdramatic. But I, I don't know that the story of Christ's covenant will be too different. I think as we are faithful to the gospel in this city, in this age, some, many we pray, will believe. And they'll believe with joy. They'll, they'll find that in Christ they can actually be free. They can actually be free they can have the hope of freedom from pain and suffering. They can have the hope of freedom from death. They can have the hope of freedom from a coming judgment. They can have the hope of freedom from all these things that they, they will find it in Jesus. Some will receive it with joy, but some, some will hate the message. Some will bring pressure on those of you who do believe the message. Some of you, your faith is going to continue with some pain with some cost. And I just want to say, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> you know, there are, there's a type of Christian that is always finding his or her identity in how much he suffers for Jesus, right? There's a kind of Christian who always finds his or her identity in whatever kind of culture war that they're in. And you know what that is? That's a false identity, <laughs> That's a false gospel. That's, that's another form of enlightenment or post-modernity of you just saying, I'm more enlightened than you, just entering into some sort of a culture war. That's not, 
that's not who Christians are. No, at Christ's covenant, my hope is that we would be like these Christians, the kind of Christians that actually hope and find joy in the Lord, that love the Lord, that love his gospel, that are faithful to him, and that even if we are to suffer or find pain, our confidence, our joy, our strength is in the Lord. Not that we're always happy. Sometimes the most appropriate thing you can do as a Christian is lament, is weep. We live in a sad and broken world. But that we find our joy, our sense of who we are and how we are in the Lord. That's what I love about these disciples. Look at verse 52 again. Paul and Barnabas are driven out of town and what? The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Christians aren't the kind of people that find our identity or our joy in some obedience to a law. We're not the kind of people that believe that we are so enlightened and our position is so great. We're not the kind of people that believe we have some secret knowledge that we have found within. No, we're the kind of people that believe we're messed up and that we need help. Actually, I've said this before, that this is the only club that it requires a bad resume to get into. You can't get into Christianity with a good resume. You can't. You, you present a good resume, you're not in. You have to have a bad resume. You have to have a broken resume. You have to be able to stand before God and say, the law, I couldn't do it. Enlightened, I'm not enlightened. Secret knowledge within, no. Corruption, deception. I need help. And we're the kind of people that believes when we stand in that courtroom, there's a loving judge who actually has come to identify with us, to live our righteousness, and to take on all of our sin, all of our brokenness, and to save us. That's who we are. Our hope is not in ourselves, it's in the Lord. Our, our, our future hope is not in something that we can achieve, it's, it's in what God is achieving it's in him. And I just want to say this to you. If you look to Jesus, if you look to Jesus, if you look away from yourself, if you, if you stop with your small and weak self-justifying actions and find an identity in the Lord and look to Christ, you can have this hope. You can be freed. There is a freedom. There is a freedom that Jesus has brought that frees you from everything that the law of Moses could not free you from, could never free you from. And so as we close today, I want us to remember this as we take the Lord's Supper together. But first, let me pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel faithfulness in the city of Paul and Barnabas of their commitment to Jesus. In their age, I pray that you would give us as a church a commitment to this gospel in, in our age, faithfulness to the one who can free us. And Father, I do pray that you would even now, by your power, turn the hearts of men and women here who are looking to other things, to lesser things, you would turn all of our hearts away from small self-justifying attempts toward Jesus and toward the hope and the freedom that only he can give. 
And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.